Well, good morning, everybody. As you've heard, we're looking at Luke 17, verses 20 onwards to the end of the chapter. Um, Jesus is now just a few days away from his crucifixion, and uh, he's on a journey to Jerusalem. He knows he will not return from Jerusalem, but will be taken, arrested, and he will eventually be put to death there in Jerusalem. And on the journey, he's dialoguing with his disciples in particular, but other people along the road. And they mostly asked questions of Jesus, and Jesus' response takes the opportunity to teach them things that they needed to hear before he was to leave them. And this week, we're looking at this particular question that was asked both by the Pharisees and then later on by the disciples themselves. Now, the week in which we're meeting here this morning has been a momentous week, hasn't it? And uh, it's one of those days that... uh, It's one of the most momentous weeks in modern history, they say, political history and the history of this nation. The coming out of the European Union. 52% out... 48% said stay in. And um, whether you like it or not, everybody is fascinated by what has come as a result of that. Some are very worried, some are very excited, and so on. Even if it's not what you voted for, it is still a very, very interesting time for us to be around in these days. And you'll notice that throughout the four months or so of discussion and planning for the, ele- uh, uh, the uh, referendum that took place, the campaign has been very confrontational. Accusations have been made on one side or another. Both sides accuse the other of telling lies um, and so on. Some have talked about the coming of a political Armageddon as a result of whatever decision was taken, and particularly the one that has been taken, there'll be constant battles, there'll be constant strife, and the destruction of all that's good. You would think that that would be what the result would be. On the other side, others say we're stepping into the Elysian fields that Homer spoke about, you know, where everything is peace and joy, where Zeus, the gods of this world, and so on, the gods will bring in peace and calm for everybody and there'll be perfect happiness. You can take your choice as to which or any of those points of view are correct. But throughout this whole time of discussion and debate, there's been one constant cry that has come from both sides. That is, give us the facts. Give us the facts. You're just trying to frighten us in one way or another. What we need is facts. What is actually going to happen? What decision? What facts do we need to know on which to make a rational decision on this? But there is a sense in which, of course, it's not possible to give facts about things that are yet future. I mean, how do you give facts about the future? You can only give opinions based upon past experience. You can't actually give facts about the future because nobody has been in the future yet. So how do you know what will happen? How can facts itself be given? It's mostly guesswork, projections, opinions, even though much of it would be based upon experience of the past. And even now, of course, now the decision has been taken, nobody really knows how things are going to work out. And yet we're very curious. 
We're curious about how things are going to work out. We're curious about the future and the decisions that are, t- are taken and so on. And it seems that even in New Testament times, the disciples themselves were very curious about the future. What's going to happen? How are we going to face the future? Tell us the process of things that will take place. In Matthew chapter 24, they said to Jesus, Tell us what will happen. What will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? Or in the passage that we've read together, it was the Pharisees who asked, when the kingdom of God was going to take place. So they were fascinated about the future. And Jesus tells them in this passage some things about the future that they were yet uh, to face. We finished last week, um, and Chris led us in our thinking last week, at the first part of this chapter, we finished last week with those ten Samaritans who were healed, and only one came back. And incidentally, he didn't talk about it much, but notice that he came back and he praised the Lord with a loud voice, which will please some people. But he praised the Lord with a loud voice, it says. But now we've got to this particular point and the dialogue on the future and that they were asking. Sparked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And then when he answers that, the disciples take up the question in verse 22, saying, the time is coming, uh, he, he turned to the disciples rather and said, the time is coming when you'll no longer see the days of the Son of Man, but you long to see it, but you will not see it. So let's pause. It's important for us to do so and ask ourselves, how do we face the future? What are you thinking about? And I'm not talking here just politically, but in every way, how are you facing the future? And as I said, nobody can really know the future unless they've been in the future. I mean, how can anybody really know if they've not been there? And that's why it's very important to realize that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He's in the past, the present, and the future. That's why you can pray about things in the past and you can pray about things in the future because Jesus, because he is God, part of the Godhead, He has control of past, present, and future. Now, I know our minds can't take that in. We are bound by time. But to think of Jesus, he is the beginning and he is the end. Everything flows through him. He is the I am, the ever-present one, the ego I may, as he called himself, the I, I am. So we can, when we need to know about the future, the one that we need to come to is none other than somebody who's been in the future, Jesus himself. Now, as I said, our minds can't take that in. But that's the picture that the Bible gives of God himself, and Jesus is part of the Godhead, God himself being outside of time, yet in time as well. So we can ask him about the future just as these Pharisees did, although they were not thinking in the the, um, uh, big terms, but just on what was going to happen in the next little while. So Jesus is the only one that we can really speak to authoritatively. Now I'm well aware that um, we're stepping on holy ground here. Uh, It's a place where Jesus' humanity and his divinity meet. At a human level, clearly Jesus did not know all things. I mean, he said on one occasion that this is something that even the Son of Man doesn't know, he said on one occasion. 
at a human level, he does not know all things. And, uh, but on the, as, as far as his divinity is concerned, he clearly did know the future, and he spoke about the future and said what would happen in the future, much of which has come to pass and is coming to pass. Now, exactly where this humanity and this divinity of Jesus overlap are very difficult areas, and we don't, in our finite minds and our finite thinking, have all the answers. But what we do know about Jesus gives us confidence so that we can say to Jesus, I don't fully understand, but I can trust you concerning the future, because you've been in the future. I can trust my future into your hands. Now that's true politically, as far as the country is concerned, but it's, it's certainly true for us as individuals. What we do know about Jesus is that we can trust him. He is trustworthy, even about things in the future. So these Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him about the kingdom of God. When is it coming? What is going to happen? Now, the Pharisees, of course, were those people who looked for an earthly kingdom of God. That's what they longed for. A Jewish political kingdom was what they were looking for. So I guess that when these Pharisees came and said in verse 20, they are... Um, he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. I guess that what was in their mind was, when are we Jews going to be set free from the tyranny of Rome? When can we re-establish our kingdom? When are we going to have a, a king of our own? When will the Messiah come and reign earthly, on an earthly kingdom here and now? And Jesus' reply to them is very interesting. He says to them, you can look for it, you can talk about it, this kingdom, but you, that is you Pharisees, you will not see it. Interesting, isn't it? You want the f to know the future, but I'm telling you, you won't see it, you Pharisees. Because the type of kingdom you're looking for is one that you will not see. It doesn't come with careful observation, verse 20. That's not how it comes, so you won't see it like that. And in verse 21, verse, he says this, No people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is among you, or within you, or in, uh, amongst you at this time. So you, you're looking for a political kingdom. You're looking for a physical reign, an overthrow of Rome. And all that's involved with it, the establishment of a new political order, that's what you're looking for, but you'll never see it. Jesus comments to these disciples. Now, I, this, this Sunday morning, I wonder if I, it's stretching it a bit to apply it to even our political system. Yes, it's right to uphold righteousness and in our political systems and our voting and our democracies and so on, it's right to think of upholding righteousness and establishing righteousness and justice, etc. And to vote and exercise our rights is an important thing for us as Christian people to seek justice. But if you're seeking all these things merely in a political kingdom, you will not find it. You will not find it, is what Jesus is saying here. You may feel that socialism upholds man's rights better for supporting the weak and the vulnerable. Or you may think that a free market economy is much more likely to supply the prosperity so that individuals can help the weak and the poor. But if you think any political system will usher in utopia, 
think again. You will not see it, if we can put it quite like that. The kingdom is not, uh, of God will not be seen by any political system. Whether you talk of capitalism or communism or Christian Democrats or socialism or liberalism or benevolent dictatorship, whatever you might think is a good idea. That's not what we as believers look for. And it's helpful to remind ourselves on a Sunday like this. That's not what we're looking for. If we are Christian people, we are looking for a completely different kingdom to be established. And then Jesus goes on to say, the kingdom of God is among you or amongst you, with you here. It's within you. NIV in some versions have it, and amongst you it means. And that is because Jesus was amongst them. It's me. It's me. The kingdom comes with me. So that when I open up my heart to Jesus Christ and submit to him by the Holy Spirit, then we will begin to see the kingdom of God because it's in Jesus. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Now, the Pharisees didn't understand a word of this, of course. They, he didn't, didn't explain all this, but they didn't understand because they lived in the realm of the physical, the political, the system. So they didn't see it. In fact, they even opposed the kingdom of God when it was seen in Jesus and eventually led to Jesus being put to death. Then Jesus spoke to the disciples to clarify things for them because clearly they were confused. And there are three things that we're just going to mention here concerning the kingdom of God. First of all, Jesus said, be watchful. Secondly, be warned. And thirdly, be wise. Not difficult to understand, is it? Be watchful, um, be, be warned, and be wise. First of all, be watchful. That is verses 22 to 29. Said it was, uh, you were long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Now, as we read these verses, I don't know whether you took them in as Abby was reading them, but they're not the easiest verses to take in straight away, especially when you have a high view of Scripture in which every word has meaning. But the drift of what Jesus is saying is clear. He's saying, look, you disciples, you too will be tempted to look for earthly kingdoms. You too will look for these sort of things if you're not careful. And you will want to see the kingdom of God ushered in on the earth. You will even long to see just one day. Did you notice it said one day? You'll long to see one day of the kingdom. Verse 22. Jesus was about to leave them. And they, the disciples, from a completely different perspective from the Pharisees, will want to see Jesus' kingdom, the day of the Son of Man. And they'll be tempted to look for it here or there, and some will say, we've seen it, come and find it, and so on. And about, be careful, because you will not find it in those ways. You know, about um, five years ago, I was in the newsagents in Hucklecote, where we live, and um, I was standing in a queue of about three people being served, and there was a person who was standing at the desk paying for whatever that person had bought, was talking about Jesus returning. Jesus is going to return. I was amazed to hear it being said, but anyway, Jesus is going to return, and he will return this year, the person was saying. 
His feet will touch the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split, and all that's involved with, with that. Two days ago, just, was it two days ago? Yes, two days ago, I was asked by somebody about the Dome of the Rock, where the, in Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount is, where there's the Mo, um, Muslim Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, uh, uh, and uh, where the Temple was originally. And the Orthodox Jews, they said, are planning to blow up the, the uh, mosque that's there. They've got plans and to rebuild the temple. And uh, the Jews have plans to rebuild the temple uh, immediately. And that's likely to happen within the next few months, this person was saying to me just two days ago. Now, uh, there may be, of course, a come a time when doubtless some of these events will take place. How? When? We really do not know. But the point is that Jesus is saying is this, if you spend your time running after these things all the time, looking for the day of the Son of Man, you will not see it because it's not really an earthly kingdom that we're talking about here at all. And there's a temptation to spend our time, too much time, looking for this or that or the other. Charles Haddon Spurgeon um, had quite a high regard for the Christian brethren the Plymouth Brethren, as they were known then, had quite a high regard for them. But on one occasion, he was preaching on Acts 1, verse 11, and he said this, O men of Plymouth, <laughs> why do you stand gazing into the sky? This same Jesus, whom you have seen go into the heavens, will come back in the same way as you have seen him go. Meantime, you've got a job to do. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What he was saying was, yes, these things will happen. But we've got a job to do in the meantime. We've got to live here and now. We look for the coming of the kingdom. We are watchful for it. But we shouldn't be obsessed by it but to the extent that we're not doing anything else. Yes, it's a glorious truth that Jesus will return and we do not talk about it enough. But it should not paralyze us for our living here and now and to serving the Lord Jesus, being witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When he comes, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, you will know it, you won't miss out on it. It will be, he says, like lightning from the one side of the heavens to the other, which flashes, flashes and lights up the whole sky from one end to the other. It will be obvious you know, the coming of the Lord Jesus, when he returns, it will not be an esoteric mystery for a few people to know about and so on. It will be like lightning, unmistakable, indistinguishably uh, different from everything, uh, distinguishably different from everything else that you have seen. And everybody will see, every eye shall see him. But first, verse 25, the Son of Man must suffer many things. First coming, the Son of Man was a man of suffering, acquainted with grief. They spat at him. When he comes again, the second coming, he will come as the man of power, in unimaginable glory, so much so that every knee will bow, and some will bow in terror, and will cry out to the rocks to fall upon them, and the mountains to bury them when he comes. So Jesus says, when I come back, it will be obvious. It will be like lightning in the sky. But the issue Jesus goes on is concerning the context of the glo his glory, his returning glory. 
He said it would be just like days of Noah when Jesus returns. Now, um, what were the terrible, wicked things that Noah and the people were doing that uh, preceded the flood that took place? What were those terrible things? Well, Jesus lists them. Here they are. Eating, drinking, being married, being given in marriage. And that took place right up to the time of the flood. These were not terrible things. These were ordinary, everyday things. Eating and drinking, getting married, and giving people away in marriage and so on. These were not terrible, wicked things that they were doing at at that particular time. During which Noah preached for a hundred years while he was building the ark. Actually, I don't know whether he preached in the sense that we mean preaching, standing up and telling everybody, or whether his actions were preaching by building the ark. We do know that he was called, and Peter calls him the preacher of righteousness. So he must have preached in some form or another, but in any case, what his, his actions preached um, as well, though we're not told exactly how he preached. And it's not difficult to imagine the people watching Noah build this ark, mocking him and laughing at him. What on earth are you doing, Noah? He's saying it's going to rain. Rain? What's that? Until that time it hadn't rained. We're told in the scriptures that the earth had been watered by the mists that rose. No rain. He says, no, the skies are going to open and water's going to fall down. That's crazy, Noah. Never seen it, never heard about it. Nothing like that will ever happen. You're mad. I'm not sure that Noah actually told them about the judgment that was to come. And if you want to know why I'm not sure about that, it's because it says in Matthew that they ate and drank right up to the flood and they did not know anything about what would happen. Well, if he'd been telling them, they would have known something. But uh, it says they did not know anything about what was going to happen. So it appears that they didn't, it it wasn't that they disagreed with Noah, they just ignored him, took no notice. They just married and ate and drank and gave each other away in marriage. 150 years ago, if you'd said to people, in 150 years' time, on our day, do you know the center of the, the turmoil in the world will be the Middle East? They'd have laughed at you. I mean, at that time, the Middle East was just a bunch of small number of Arab peoples that really didn't cut much ice anywhere at any time. People were not interested in them. They weren't doing anything. But now, if you were to say, if you were to say then that the centre of the world's attention and they would hold the world to ransom because of the oil, etc., they'd have said, you're crazy. But it came to pass. And so that now the Middle East is the centre of the world in many ways. But, you know, Noah preached however he preached, and people took no notice, even though the storm clouds were gathering. And then it's similar in Lot's day, Jesus says. They ate, they drank, in the days of Lot. You know, Peter speaks about Lot as being righteous Lot. You know, there's some terrible things about Lot, but Peter talks him righteous. That righteous man Lot is what Peter says in his uh, second Peter Two. But the time came when he lived in Sodom and judgment was going to fall upon Sodom 
And God wanted Lot, because he was righteous Lot, to be out of the city. And so he sent an angel, in the form of a man, but they sent him, sent an angel to get him out of the city of Lot, to rescue him from the tribulation, the suffering that was going to take place. And Lot and his wife and their two daughters, they had to be dragged out of the city. It says in the Genesis 19 that the angel had to take hold of their hand and drag them out of the city. He was reluctant to go. And then it says in Peter, just as the Lord delivered Lot, he knows how to rescue the righteous from tribulation. He knows how to rescue the righteous from suffering. And when it says in the scripture that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive shall be caught up to, together to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we forever be with the Lord. We should be watchful, watchful, looking, anticipating, preparing for the time when the Lord's kingdom will come in that sense and he will be amongst us in a way that he's not yet amongst us, but he will be amongst us. So the first thing is be watchful. Secondly, be warned. Verses 30 to 37. In the light of that, Jesus goes on to say, be wise, be ready. And what he says is, don't get too attached to the things of this earth. What he calls here, when he speaks about, um, on that day no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Don't get too attached to the things, your goods, as he calls them here. Don't get hung up on them, the things of this earth. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, instead we should set our sights on things above, not on the things of the earth. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, says Paul. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Rather weigh up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Set your heart on things above. That's the wisdom that comes through the teaching that Jesus gives here. And it culminates in Lot's wife, because she was one of those who was rescued by the angel who came from, um, and took them out of Sodom. She was rescued along with her husband and their two daughters. But you know what happened? She got to the point where, on the way out, she turned back. She looked back. And so Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Be warned. We can get tied up looking backwards at so many of the things that are belonging to this earth. The things we have, the things we do, the lifestyles we have and so on. Don't get too tied up on those things. Yes, we live amongst them, we use them, we have to have those as part of our being, but that's not where our heart should be set. Rather, we should look forward to the coming of the Lord himself and be warned, because it's dangerous to look back to these thin things. You know, I, I think about this, it came to my mind the, the, the letter that Jesus wrote to Thyatira, one of those seven letters in the beginning of the book of Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 2 and uh, verse 21. The church at Thyatira, yes, they were believers, but they were messing about with the world, immorality and so on. 
Jesus chides them for this and tells them off for what they were doing. And uh, he says to them, uh, there it got to the point where it appears that there was no real distinction between the believers and the world. And uh, Jesus said to them this in Revelation 2.21, I gave her time to repent of her immorality, and she was unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent from their ways. Like Lot's wife, who turned her back on the angel, looked back to Sodom, where she possessed all her house, and where they in important, held important positions, because they sat at the gates. That means that they were imparting the, the, the judgment, sort of local rulers in Sodom. She turned her back, looked back at that, and as a result, she was turned into a pillar of salt, because she had set her eyes on the wrong things. And if God says, I want you to turn away from these things, otherwise you might be cast on a bed of suffering unless you repent. That's a bed we don't want to lie in. Now putting these two things together, we must be willing to turn our back on the stuff of this world. Not that we don't have it, we have to use it. But we don't set our heart on it. Instead, we should remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. So first of all, be watchful. Secondly, be warned. Thirdly, be wise. And this is a passage that we haven't read. It's in chapter 19, uh, in verse 11 onwards. I'm not going to spend more than a couple of minutes in it as we come to a close what we're talking about. But here's a story Jesus told them, roughly on the same theme. When they came to him, and asked him about the kingdom of God. People thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, it says in verse 11 of chapter 19. And he told them the story about the rich man, a nobleman, who had ten servants. And he was going off to a far country, and he gave each of these ten servants ten minas, that's a unit of weight, ten minas of gold and told to trade with them, or silver was it, to trade with them. And then he would come back and see what they'd made from that money. And when the, ma- the rich man came back, the master came back, he called the servants and said to them, have you been getting on? The first one said, here's your mina of silver. Here it is. It's earned ten more. And Jesus says, well done, good faithful servant. I'll put you in charge of ten cities. Then the one who made five came back, and he said, I've made him manage to make five. And Jesus says exactly the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'll put you in charge of five cities. Then there's the one who came back and said, Here it is. I've kept it. It's safe. You needn't have worried about it while you're away in a foreign country. <laughs> I've kept it safe. Here it is, wrapped up. And Jesus said, You wicked servant. You knew that I'm a jealous man and I would want you to have traded with it. I asked you to trade with it and you've done nothing with it. And he said to the servants, take it away from him. Give it to those who has, he has ten. In the story Jesus told, that's the three servants. But what about the other seven? There were ten. As far as we know, they didn't even turn up at all at the end. 
Now put yourself just for a moment in the position of the man who made ten. The man who made five, rather. Five. He might have looked at the man who made ten and thought, I'm completely useless. I'm not nearly as good as him. Look at him, he's made twice as much. He's much better than I am. And he might have got very depressed, very cast down. But you see, the judgment was not his to make. It was the master when he returned. And he said to him, you're a good servant. And he got exactly the same commendation as the man who made ten. On the other hand, the man who made one and brought the one back, he might have said to the, to the master, oh, here it is, wrapped up. And uh, he might have been filled with pride because at least he brought it back when seven of them didn't even turn up at the end. But Jesus said, you're a wicked servant. The judgment was not that man's to make. It was the master's job to make the judgment. Now, why do I say that? Well, it means this, that when God gives us a work to do, we do it in the light of his return. But we don't do it with our eyes on each other, comparing ourselves with one another, saying, I'm really good, I'm much better than he is at my Christian service. Neither do we say, oh, I'm completely useless and feel depressed. But we do it with our eyes set on the Master's return when we will hear the commendation from his lips and we do all we can to prepare and look forward to the time when he returns and we live the praise of his glory because we shall give an account when the Master returns. So we look for the coming of the kingdom of God. May God make us faithful in the talents that he's given us, the abilities he's given to us, as we set our eyes upon him and not the things of this earth and live for the praise of his glory. Thank you very much, Kim.